Welcome to the Gaimia Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We're so glad you're listening to the pod and trust that this message encourages your heart and faith today. At GBC, we're all about partnering with God in the renewal and restoration of all things. And it's our hope that through these sermons, you'll discover the life-changing power of Jesus. If you'd like to join us in person or online or find out more, check out our website at guymerebaptist.org.au. I'm going to invite Cara Martin to join me. Cara and I, um, I found out over time that we have more connections than I thought. Uh, she attends Harborside Baptist Church where my eldest daughter, Amaris, and her husband, Ben, have ended up as well. And she was in a class that I taught and I was at a summit that she was running. But would you welcome Cara as she joins me on the platform? Thanks, Matt. Well, good morning, Cara. Uh, you're from Narrabeen, so it took you a while to get here this morning. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Not quite. Tell us, tell us about your family. Yeah, um, I'm married to but one husband, uh, David, and uh, we run a little home maintenance business, uh, which is based in Mossman, and we go to church at Mossman, so that works out sort of quite neat. We go to church at Mossman because my son-in-law is the uh, children's and youth pastor there, um, so my daughter Jaslyn is there as well, and I've got a adult son Guy, who's uh, married to Shenai. So married off all the kids. <laughs> I hear that. Um, uh, or mostly, mostly. Uh, so tell us, what do you do? I mean, you've told us a little bit now about you know, the, the business, but what, what would you say you do as a vocation right now? Ooh, yeah. Um, many things. So I've described, you know, wife, mother, <laughs> part business owner, but uh, mostly what I do is I teach. Uh, I'm teaching at four colleges uh, this year. Um, and I also uh, speak regularly at different places. I mentor and coach people. Um, I write. Uh, so fairly broad range of stuff. Really. Yeah, fairly yeah. eclectic in lots of ways. One of the colleges will be Morling College. No, that's it's, an extra you know, one. That's an extra See, it's five. only one lecture. I don't count just, that. Oh, <laughs> wow. I've asked Carr to come and do the work lecture for the class I'm teaching this yeah, semester. Yeah, so looking forward to that. Um, so what sparked your interest in the integration of faith and work? Mm. Like what was it that kind of started you on that journey? Uh, it was when I, I, was, I, got, I got this job of being a TV journo and I walked into that newsroom and I thought I was really prepared. I had this idea of God um, preparing me to be a journalist so I could bring truth and justice to the world. Um, walked into the newsroom and just thought, oh my goodness, I am not prepared for this. I'm not prepared for the culture. Um, I realized actually how, how surrounded by a Christian culture I had been, because this culture felt really different. Um, yeah, and really strange. There was so much stress and pressure. I wasn't prepared for that. There was um, a habit of everyone sort of you know, you get through the stress and pressure and then you drink afterwards and there was a real sort of temptation around that. And then the stories themselves, um, things I would write would get blown up into sort of really big stories and I just didn't know how to deal with that. So I suddenly realised I really don't know how to be a Christian in this workplace. Um, and when I went to my church, my church was much more interested in me promoting the church through TV than they were in actually helping me to be able to navigate that. And I realised there weren't many resources around at that time. So from that stage, it's really been my life goal to try and help people, I would say, reintegrate faith work, because I think they're two things that should never have been separated. So as part of that journey, you've written a couple of books yep. uh, on this idea. Can you just talk mm -hmm. a little bit about kind of what led to those? Sure. 
Uh, <laughs> well, it was sort of accidental. Um, <laughs> I know that sounds weird, but um, I was lecturing at a Bible college down in Melbourne, and there was a student in my class. I didn't know that his dad was a publisher. And so he told his dad, my lecturer has been talking about this book she wants to publish called Workship. I had made up this word, Workship, combining work and worship to show they should be integrated. And, uh, and I'd, I'd said in class sometimes, you know, I really should publish that book one day, meaning I like that word and I want us to hold on to that word. But I hadn't actually written the book. But, <laughs> but his dad, uh, this student's dad, wrote to me and said, oh, you know, my son says it's really interesting. Can you send me a chapter outline of the book? And I said, sure. You know, <laughs> send it off. Didn't hear anything for a while. Didn't think much about it. And then he wrote back and he said, oh, we really love that. Can you send the introduction and tell us why you're writing the book? And I said, sure, give me a week to polish it up. <laughs> Send it off and um, didn't hear it again for a while. And I thought, oh, well, that was, you know, a bit of fun. And then, uh, then he wrote to me and said, we'd like the book, we'd like to publish it. And I said, okay, I've got to write it. Um, <laughs> so I went away uh, to Norway recommend that, um, and wrote it, and yeah, that became Workship, How to Use Your Work to Worship God, and then part two uh, was about uh, how to flourish at work. So the first one, sort of a theology of work and some spiritual disciplines for the workplace. Book two, the thing I really thought was missing was practical wisdom for the workplace, those sort of issues that I was facing as a TV journal, um, and also how churches can better equip people for the workplace. So those are those two books. Right, so I, like you can get them both. You don't have any copies with you. They're all sold out, yeah. um, which is a good problem as far as I understand. But you can get them on uh, Amazon. So I'm actually about halfway through Workship. It's uh, very clear, uh, and each of the chapters has kind of some questions to answer. So it's kind of a good workbook as well, a Workship book. Um, and uh, you can kind of work that through both as an individual, but also as a life group if you'd be interested in that. Uh, and those are, as I said, available there. So it sounds like it's been quite a journey for you. Mm. How has your thinking changed? I mean, it's interesting mm. that, you know, you talked about starting it in journalism and just realizing mm. that you weren't prepared mm. to be a Christian in that environment. Mm. So that's what sparked your thinking. You started doing some work about the integration mm. practices. Like, what's the biggest, biggest change uh, or biggest surprise even that, sure. uh, that's come across? Um, I think when I started, because I felt sort of, the church didn't have much to say in this space. I joined together with some other journos, a radio journo and a print journo, and we used to meet together, and then we thought, let's hold a conference. Maybe other journalists are struggling with this. And then we held a conference and um, invited some people down, and that was actually quite a big success. And um, out of that, eventually emerged Christians in the media, which was great. But I was struck with how much of this conversation happens outside the church. Uh, and I think probably what I've become absolutely convicted about is the fact that um, this is a conversation that needs to be driven by the church. Uh, and I, I think I got it because uh, I was teaching at a, a college and we had 2,000 students come through. Um, and one of the students said to me, you know, that course that, that, that I learnt... Um, she said it was absolutely life-changing. She was a teacher and just so prepared her for teaching in the public school system. She said, but she said every Sunday I'd hear something different, a different message. And I realised we need to make sure this is consistent. But more importantly, I think that the church is 
God and Jesus' preferred means of bringing about restoration in the world. So I think this has to be a conversation that happens in church, which is why I'm so glad you invited me, Mark, because this is exactly where the conversation needs to happen. So thank you. I, I, I promised I might spring a yeah. fifth question on you that was not prepared. Can you, um, what, is it that, what, what is it that the church gets wrong? Mm. Uh, and I, I'm not, I, this is not a trap. This is not a trick question. This is not, I'm not trying to set you up or anything like that. Like genuinely, I mean, I think this is, I think it's a really important question for all of us. You know, as we talked about last week, vocation is something that we all do all the time. How, how has the church gotten it wrong? If you could summarize it. Yeah, in a minute or two and not insult anyone next to me. Um, okay. <laughs> um, well, I'll give you a story to illustrate, I think, part of the way it gets it wrong. So in my classes, I often say, whoever has been visited in the workplace by their pastor? And if I ask that question, I get maybe one hand up or two hands up. And... Um, I asked this in, in one of the classes, and the answers from both those people ended up being, you know, the guy, there was a guy who was a barista, and he was visited by his pastor because his pastor was casing the place and hoping that this guy would be able to organise a free event for the church. <laughs> and another one, uh, he was saying that his pastor visited because he was particularly interested in a part of the work that he was going to use for a sermon illustration, take photos. And um, I think that's part of it that often... The church says, wow, this is great. We can actually utilise people in the workplace, but it's for the purposes of the church. It's more an internal-looking thing. Um, and those two people came away thinking, my work is only useful um, sort of extrinsically for, for the way it can be used. Um, but the really important message I think that people need to hear is that God loves you in the work that you're doing, in the context in which you are. He's placed you there for a, a reason. And there is amazing work that he can do through you in that place. And your work has value in and of itself. And I think that intrinsic value of work is a message that sometimes gets lost in things. Um, and then, yeah, I think if the church embraces that, people feel encouraged by that. Um, I find that often what happens then is that there's a much greater unity in the work, both of the church and in the world, which is really exciting. Mm. That's very well answered. I don't feel offended at all. Good. So, uh, we're, we're really pleased that you could be with us both this Thanks, morning man. and this evening uh, to continue to help us think this through because as, as a church, I think we want to do this better uh, mm -hmm. so that we understand more fully what it is to be Christians in the workplace and what that looks like for us. Would you thank Cara thank for being up here for a moment? <clears throat> so Cara will be up again in just a moment. Good morning, church. The Bible reading today comes from Acts 3, 11 to 21. Peter speaks to the onlookers. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us? as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, 
but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that he has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Thank you. It is lovely uh, to be here. Uh, Just after David and I were married, we lived in Sutherland for a period of time. And then after that, we lived in Wollongong for five years. We used to drive past this church a lot. (laughs) I often noticed it and wondered what happened inside. Um, But I came to know this church is a bit of a powerhouse church in Sydney. And it's a real privilege to be here. I'm very excited about being here today. Uh, When you uh, Google images for vocation, uh, AI puts up pictures of vacation, (laughs) Uh, people on vacation in all sorts of places. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, it's just one letter difference, but AI hasn't quite got that yet. Um, But I think there's something there that I will come back to later, which is actually, yeah, there's a message there, I think, that we can actually learn from. But there are also many myths of vocation. One of the uh, myths of vocation is that calling is all about me. It's all about me as an individual. It's something that I have to work out. It's something that I have to find. I wonder if you've believed that myth, that you think it's something that you have to work really hard at. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, um, Mark was talking about the need to find our calling as a community. And that's actually an answer to that myth in many ways. I don't think calling is all about us. In fact, I think calling, which comes from the word vocation, which comes from the Latin vacare, to call, it means it presumes that someone is doing the calling and that someone is God. Calling is not all about us. It's actually all about God. The second myth is that God tangibly calls people. Um, I know some people are waiting for that that tangible voice from God. Um, And we see it occasionally in the Bible. We see that happen, uh, especially to the prophets and to Moses. And those are the things that we remember. Uh, But actually, there are a lot of people in the Bible who did not receive that tangible call from God in that way. Um, You've probably heard of people, and I've heard of people, occasionally God does tangibly call Um, And probably after this service, there'll be one in two people who say, I heard God. (laughs) And that is awesome. But I would say in my experience that that's not the norm. Um, Often it's as as little, silly little things like the way I wrote my book. (laughs) That a student says, has a misunderstanding, says to his father, my lecturer has written a book. And then a lecturer sends me an email. It's, uh, that's the way sometimes God gets things done. Sometimes it's knocking on a door seeing if that door opens or if that door closes. The third one is, there is one thing I am called to do. 
I think this is pretty prevalent. Uh, I've got a friend, she's 57, and she still says, I don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up. <laughs> she's still waiting for that one thing that maybe God is calling her to do. Um, and I feel a bit sad about that. I mean, she's done a lot of pretty amazing things through her life, and yet she still feels there must be that one thing. I don't think that's true either. I think it's a myth. There isn't necessarily just one thing. There's probably a series of things, and maybe you're doing the thing right now. Uh, the fourth one, this is pretty prevalent. Calling is just about church work. So if you do talk about calling, often it's this sense of, well, it's calling to be a pastor or calling to be a missionary or something like that. That's sometimes the only way that we hear about calling in a church context or we talk about it. Um, I would say that's a myth too, and I'll, I'll give you some evidence that's over 500 years old, surely. <laughs> and the last one is that vocation is only about occupation, and vocation is only about our job. Uh, I don't think that's true either. I think sometimes you do have a job that is your vocation, that, that does line up with your sense of calling, and when that happens, that's incredible. But sometimes your calling is something completely different. Sometimes it's something that you do in the time that you don't work. Sometimes it's, it's your parenting is a calling. There's lots of different ways that we can express our calling. If it is your occupation, then that is really cool. But it's not always like that. Okay, so I promised you evidence. The evidence that calling is not just about church work actually comes from Martin Luther. Over 500 years ago, he, he wrote an essay called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. And he wrote these words that have actually reverberated around the world. They've changed the way everyone thinks about calling, vocation, and jobs. He said, the works of monks and priests, we might say pastors and missionaries, the works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the rustic labourer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks. All works are measured before God by faith alone. So what he's saying there is it doesn't matter in some ways the context in which you do your work. What really matters is what's happening inside, what's happening in your heart, the way that you're seeking to serve God and serve others through your work. That is the thing that counts. And when you've got that in your heart, if that's your attitude and if that's what you're seeking to do, then it turns all sorts of work into something that is holy, but something that is sacred. Because he said those words, in our everyday language, we have things that are called vocational colleges, don't we? TAFEs. Um, that comes from the fact that Martin Luther said this. We talk about vocational education and helping people find their vocation thinking about that in terms of jobs. But that's because Martin Luther, over 500 years ago in Germany, <laughs> said these words and said that everyday work can actually be something that is sacred. He changed the way we think about work forever. I want to talk about the way that calling is referred to in the Bible because I think that will help us become really grounded in the way that we think about it. So... In the Bible, um, the work, the hard work's being done by R. Paul Stevens from Regent College. I'm glad he did this work. Um, he's looked at the way that 
The word calling is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Every single uh, word that is used in that sense. Um, in the Old Testament, it's kara. Um, yep, but with a Q. Uh, in the New Testament, it's klesis or kler. Uh, and this is the way it's used. It's used in three different ways. The first one is to belong. And the example there is Ephesians 1.18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. There is a hope to which you're called. And it's really about salvation. It's belonging to God. And as Mark emphasized a couple of weeks ago, it's a calling also to belong to the community of God as well, um, the people of God. So that's the first way that it's used, to belong. The second way it's used is to be. So the example here is from 2 Timothy 1.9. He has saved us and called us to a holy life. There's an amazing consistency in the Old Testament and the New Testament to this idea that we are called to holiness or called to holy living. So that's the second way it's used, to belong, to be, and finally to do. Most of the time we think of calling or vocation only in about what we do. Uh, but that's actually the third dimension. And the way, the way that it's used in this way is to serve so we have this um, beautiful passage from Isaiah 42. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will, make, I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So there's a real calling to serve there, isn't it? And maybe those words resonated for you. They're words both in Isaiah 61... And there were words used by Jesus in Luke 4 as well. Uh, that idea of freeing captains for prison, opening the eyes of the blind, releasing people. That's the work of Jesus. And that's the third way that we are called. We are called to serve others in that way to continue Jesus' mission in the world. So one call, three dimensions, to belong, to be, and to do. Uh, my friend Michaela O'Donnell-Long has described this as sort of a, a bit like a babushka doll. I don't know if you've got one of those. I had one that we played with the kids, you know, that thing where you've got uh, this little thing at the middle and then there's another doll that goes on the outside and the outside and the outside and you sort of build it up. And that's the way she uses it um, to describe a sense of calling. So our fundamental call, the one that can't be opened up anymore, the little one right at the front, that's our call to salvation. That's our fundamental call as people of God, to belong to God and to belong to his community. The second one is that idea of being holy. The third one is to serve. That's the next one that goes on in the babushka doll. The next one is probably family and relationships. That's a strong sense of calling and vocation that we often have. And then maybe there's work, maybe there's other ways of calling as well. Um, I think that's a better way of seeing it. Frequently, when we think about calling, we think about it as what we do, and we think about it in terms of activity or job. But actually, these primary callings, starting with salvation, they're the really important things that we never lose. And in this way, all of us are called. And there's a calling that God has put out to the whole world to respond as well. But thinking about that latter way, those are the bigger parts of the babushka doll that are going on. What does it mean to respond to God, to think about our vocation? 
Um, some colleagues and I came up with a definition of vocation, and I hope this is helpful to you. Vocation is God's unique call on your life, which is an integrated expression of who you've been created to be. Your personality, your gifts, your skills and passions, and how you live, work, and relate to others. As you can see, it's basically whole of life. That's how we've been called. We've been called in all our life. My friend Stephen Garber has a phrase which I find really helpful uh, in talking about this. He says, the word vocation is a rich one having to address the wholeness of life, the range of relationships and responsibilities, work, yes, but also families and neighbours and citizenship locally and globally. All of this and more is seen as vocation, that to which I am called as a human being living before the face of God. Is that beautiful? Living before the face of God. I just think that's a beautiful phrase. That's what our calling is, how we actually live out our lives, follow the way of Jesus before the face of God. And we're before the face of God in everything we do. I think if we get this, I think if we get a hold of this, this changes the way we think about whatever we do. Just as an example of that, I'm going to show you... um, uh, one, oh, okay. I was going to show you something, but I didn't actually get the photo. Okay, let me, let me tell you this one. Uh, I'm going to read this out to you. I want you to think, what vocation does this describe? Messenger of sympathy and love. Servant of parted friends. Consoler of the lonely. Bond of the scattered family. Enlarger of the common life. Carrier of news and knowledge, instrument of trade and industry, promoter of mutual acquaintance. It's very poetic, isn't it? What job do you think that describes? Oh, who said postie? Oh, well done, you. (laughs) That's exactly right. A postie, it's the inscription on the old Washington post office. A postie. I told uh, my friend Ingrid, who's a postie, I, just, I said, here you are, you're a messenger of sympathy and love, a servant of parted friends. It completely changed the way she saw her job. <laughs> it raised a sense of dignity uh, in a new way. I think we need to think more deeply about even the very ordinary things that we do. I wonder if you can come up with a description like that for washing the dishes. <laughs> It might change the way we think about washing the dishes. We need those sort of descriptions. I gave you a sneak preview, but uh, this is a picture of Dorothy L. Sayers. She was a crime writer, a lay theologian. She was around the same time that C.S. Lewis was. Um, And in fact, they became good friends. Um, And she talked about work in ways I think that can deepen our understanding of what God might want from it and the way the church might speak about it. And she said, this is 80 years ago, she said this, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. It's great, isn't it? I wonder if you thought about that. That's the very first thing we should encourage you from the pulpit. So... I'm going to encourage you today, do good work. 
That's your very first demand. She goes on to say why this is important. She says, church, by all means, and decent forms of amusement, certainly. But what use is all that if in the very centre of his or her life and occupation, they are insulting God with bad carpentry? <laughs> is that great? No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Nor if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. It's a great argument, isn't it? You know, we don't often think about the first 30 years of Jesus' life and all that time he spent uh, in the carpenter's shop. But it's true, isn't it? In the Gospels, it refers to to him as the carpenter from Nazareth. I wonder how it would have diminished his ministry if people knew that he did crap work as a carpenter. (laughs) Oh, that's why he's going around speaking, yeah. Uh, (laughs) I don't think so. Not with the claims that he made. So how do we how do we find our vocation? How do we find this thing that God is preparing for us to do, the work that He's preparing us to do? Jordan Rayner is a speaker, a writer. Um, I find him really encouraging. Actually, he's got a book called To Create. Uh, he's got another book that's just come out called The Sacredness of Our Secular Work. Uh, but he he talks about three things, and in fact, um, I've read heaps and heaps of people about this, and these three things come up again and again. He says, what, what are you passionate about? What gifts has God given you? Where do you have the opportunity to love others? So I'm just going to go through these slowly. What are you passionate about? What passions has God given you? In some churches in Sydney, we don't talk about passion. Um, we sort of <laughs> accept to say don't have it. But actually, God gives us passions for a reason. He gives us Uh, desires and loves for a reason. And sometimes those are the things that motivate us to do amazing work for him. Whoever runs your hope ministry, I'm sure, has a passion for justice um, and is inspired by that to do good things. What are you passionate about? What gifts has God given you? What are the skills, the talents, the experiences that God has given you? They can be a way you can sort of try and figure this out as well, the intersection of that. And the last one is probably the one that generally in the world you don't hear about as much when you're trying to find out the thing that you're meant to do. It might be what job's going to pay me the most or what job is the easiest way to get through. But the question we would ask as Christians, where do I have the greatest opportunity to love others? Where are the needs in the world? What are some of the needs that God has put in your heart that, that you can actually meet through the work that you do? Now, I'm not going to say that that finding vocation, finding calling is an easy thing. It's a really hard thing. But there are some things that I've discovered that do make it a little bit easier. The first thing I want to say is that sometimes making sense of calling, it's helpful to think of your life as a story. That is the thing that can help. Um, And the first point I want to say is that calling is often something you recognise looking back. Those of you who have hair the colour of mine will know the, know the truth of that, that often it's actually looking back that you think, oh, that's why, oh, now I see. And then I met, oh, right, okay, this makes sense now. So usually looking back is the way we realise that God has prepared us and manoeuvred us into the place where we can do the work that he wants us to do. 
I also want to say that calling takes place in a bigger context. We might think of our life as a story, but actually we're living in God's story, his big story of what he is doing in the world, this work of restoration. And our story makes more sense in the context of that bigger story. I also want to say that being called does not always mean be being happy. One of the memes that I really hate is that one where do what you love and you'll never work another day in your life. Oh. I mean, it's very popular, sounds great, but actually calling is not about just being happy. God often calls us into hard places, calls us into places where we rub up against other people and sometimes that's for the sake of standing up for justice. Sometimes that's for the sake of, of helping someone else. And sometimes that's because we need to be shaped as well. <laughs> and that, that hurts. That's hard sometimes. And the last thing I want to say is that you are not the author of the story. We like to think we are. Sometimes we fool ourselves we are. But ultimately, someone else is the author of the story, which... And some of you will say, at last, brings us to our reading. <laughs> um, Acts 3, 11 to 21. Um, there we have Peter. He's just uh, healed a lame beggar. And there's all these onlookers around. And he starts to talk to them. And this is his second sermon. But it's, it's an amazing sermon that he, he talks about Jesus. And the thing that really strikes me about this is that for Peter... Jesus' life only made sense in looking back, right? Do you remember Peter? All those times he got it wrong. All those times he blurted out something. You know, one time he got it so right. You know, he said, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus talked about dying and rising. And Peter said, no, no, that will never happen. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You know, oh, he got it wrong. That time when Jesus actually was arrested and taken away and Jesus denied him three times. It's so frustrating watching Peter. It's so frustrating partly because we recognize ourselves in him, I suspect. But here we have Peter giving this amazing sermon, this amazing description of who Jesus is, and he nails it. He's got Jesus exactly right, who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. This is why he had to come. He's going to save the people. Um, this healing that I'm doing is done in Jesus' name because Jesus is going to restore all things. He's got it all right. But really, it's only looking back that he recognizes Jesus' life and how it all makes sense. I think the other thing that strikes me um, in the way he's describing it is that Jesus' sense of calling was so strong, it helped him to endure all that he had to endure to get to the place where he could restore all things. And sometimes we need that sense of calling as well to endure some of the places God puts us so that we can do the work that he wants us to do. And then in verse 15 of that reading, go back and check it again. Um, I just love that description of Jesus as the author of life. <laughs> it's a beautiful description. Okay, I'm a writer. It really gets me. But, <laughs> but this idea that Jesus is the author of life, he's the author of your story. He's the author of all of history. <laughs> he's the author of life. He is the one that we need to follow. And in being the author, his purpose is to restore all things. If I look at my vocational journey, it's a bit of a mess. Um, <laughs> I've taken all these 
you know, apparent wrong turns on the way through. I won't go through it in detail, but there's been so many times where I thought, oh, this is where you want me, and then something happens and it ends, but then something else opens up, and I oh, right. And it's really only lately that I've seen again how neatly the pattern goes together. I've had jobs as a journalist in communications, PR, HR, business analysis, policy and advocacy, marketing. It's a schmozzle, but I've learned to call it a portfolio career. Um, <laughs> that's good. Uh, but what it means is that I can actually talk with some experience into so many different experiences, work experiences that people have. And I've discovered that really my purpose is bound up with Colossians 1.28, where Paul talks about wanting to present everyone mature in Christ. If I think about my preaching, my teaching, my writing, my speaking, my coaching, my mentoring, it all has this idea of helping people to become more mature in Christ. So there is a sense of story to my vocational journey, and I can see it more clearly looking back. And I can see what God is doing. So what can help us? What can help us as we go from this place? Wherever you are at in your vocational journey, uh, whatever you're thinking about right now. Um, Paul Waddell is a Catholic theologian and he has come up with this idea which I think can help us, any of us, as we go uh, out into the world. He says, when we live from the truth that to be human is to be permanently on call... I love that idea. So let's not talk about a calling that we have to find. Let's think about ourselves as being on call. We're saved people of Christ. We are on call. We not only see ourselves differently, but also inhabit the world differently. Our lives are more open, more receptive, and more hospitable to others. In fact, we live on the lookout for others, finding creative ways to welcome and include our utmost concern is not about how we can promote and advance ourselves. That's how the world, I think, sees vocation, which never brings much, much lasting satisfaction anyway. But how we can make life better for others, being on call for others. Which brings me back to that first slide, vocation, vacation. I really think, actually, that being on call for God, knowing that we are called by God, that we are saved by God, we are on call means that it changes our attitude from being a tourist to being a pilgrim. Pilgrims are different to tourists. It looks the same from the outside. You know, you're going to lovely places and visiting lovely places. You're meeting people along the way. But if we go through our lives as pilgrims, I think it changes things. Because when you're a pilgrim, every moment has a sacred significance. There's something meaningful about it. Every encounter is a divine appointment. Even that really annoying work colleague, <laughs> even that difficult child, <laughs> it's a divine appointment. And you are conscious of walking on holy ground. I wonder if you've thought about that. In whatever context you do your work, whether it's your home, your neighbourhood, your community, your workplace, think about it as holy ground. How does that change the way that you think about what you're doing and what God has called you to do and where he has called you to be. Let me pray for us. Father God, I'm so grateful that Jesus went through what he did.
that he responded to your call and his life, that he did your will. Thank you for the example that he has set us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be on call, to live on call, knowing that we are saved, that we are seeking to be holy with the power of your spirit, that you have called us to serve in every context in which you have placed us, in every relationship that you have given us to enjoy. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to go out this week with new purpose, new vigour, to be on call for you every moment. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast. We hope you found inspiration and encouragement and God used this message to speak to you. If you want to connect more with GBC, you can follow us on social media or contact us via our website. You can also get to know some of the people from our church community through the We Are The Church podcast. Real stories of real people sharing how Jesus has shaped and transformed their life. We pray you experience the transforming power of Jesus in your life and pray that God blesses you today.